my podcast. This is David Suiza, and today we have Allison Joseph, the world famous Jew in the City. What is Jew in the City, Allison? So Jew in the City, today it's an organization. It's a 501c3. Um, it started really as a an idea of rebranding the Orthodox Jewish world. I was raised with a lot of negative associations with Orthodox Jews. I was raised as a proud Jew, but we were conservative, which meant that we were normal. So my mom raised us that reform doesn't do enough. Orthodox is crazy. We're conservative. We're, we're the normal kind of Jew. Um, my father took care of Satmar Hasidim when he was doing his residency in Mount Sinai. And some of my earliest memories of my life at four years old were him coming home and disparaging his patients. They're dirty. They're smelly. They're ignorant. They can't speak English. So in my mind, the Orthodox was really just this negative part of our people. Like I was so proud to be Jewish and I wanted to marry Jewish and continue sort of, you know, the Jewish peoplehood. But if you got too religious, that was an embarrassment. Um, and I had a personal tragedy in my life after my parents had spent, you know, almost nine years building this happy and thriving and privileged, you know, all-American secular Jewish life for my sisters and me. When I was eight years old, a father in my school went crazy and killed both his kids and himself. And I come into school the next day and I find out that a murder has occurred. And suddenly I'm confronted with the most intense news and my mind starts racing to all sorts of places. For instance, when will my end come? I know I'm an eight-year-old kid, but maybe it could happen a lot sooner. What do I do when I get there for all of eternity? Do I, am I nothing? Is it you know heaven? What is that? And then I got to this even more basic question, which is, what am I doing here in the meantime? I must have some purpose or some reason I'm alive. And surely mommy and daddy know because they had three children. So why wouldn't they know why they're here? And a few days later, I asked them just very casually, you know, by the way, why are we alive past the bagels? And they just stared back at me. And when I discovered that, you know, the people that put me in this world didn't know what they were doing here, it was this terrifying discovery. It's incredible eh, how, like, death could bring kind of clarity to our lives sometimes. Even at such a young age. I think everyone else pretty much went back to normal, but this really shook me to my core. And whenever I would distract myself, you know, I was a straight-A student, I was a life of the party. The minute that my mind would go back to the fact that nothing's adding up to anything and all the accomplishments that I make in this world will one day add up to zero because I'll be gone, I was left with just the greatest terror um, that maybe I'm wasting all of my time here and I don't even know what it's for. So, you know, uh, I met, met a rabbi once. I was a huge follower of his, Manus Friedman. I was his groupie, and I finally met him. And he doesn't talk much, so I got to sit next to him at the Kinnis in Crown Heights. And I asked him, Rabbi Friedman, what's the biggest fear that people have? And, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I got the story wrong. He asked me, what's the biggest fear that people have? And I said, well, you know, the fear that you get sick, that you lose your job. I gave the typical cliche answers. And then he said something I'll never forget in my whole life. And he said, it's the fear that their life has no meaning. Yeah. You know, it's intense. And I speak about this often. And most of the audiences that hear me speak, it's moving. Every so often I get one or two people that it hit a chord in a very negative way. They, so they couldn't handle it. It was too much. It was too intense. But I, I think that you're absolutely right. So... Anyway, I had about eight years of minor panic attacks on and off insomnia, and then I met this modern Orthodox Jew. My parents sent us to an after-school Hebrew high in high school to meet nice Jewish boys, and there were these Orthodox teachers there, and I was expecting them to be women subjugating, rock-throwing extremists. But here was this guy that was completely normal like me. He had everything that my life had, but then he had something that I was missing. He had spirituality. He had a connection to something bigger than himself. 
And instead of feeling sorry for them, which I always did, I started feeling sorry for myself. And, and you weren't getting any of that in the Judaism that you were engaged with at the time? Were you going to synagogue? Were you like twice a year Jews? Yeah, twice a year Jews. You know, you have your seders, you have your, you know, you, you go to the services for the high holidays and you mm -hmm. just mumble a lot of words that you don't know There's what they no, mean. There's no rabbis There's, that ever motivated um, you. know, you. We, we never studied you. The first Jewish text I studied was with this Orthodox teacher mm -hmm. in Hebrew High. All those years of Hebrew school, th th our Hebrew school teachers were people that were not knowledgeable about Judaism themselves. So there was this sort of strong cultural pull. My mother would try to make us feel good about being Jewish by telling us how many doctors and lawyers and Nobel laureates there were. So she did try to give over some sort of, you know, pride. And I had a pride about Israel and Holocaust awareness, but I had never actually touched the wisdom in my own religion. It had not been made available. Um, and I was this thinker. And when I discovered that there was this whole vast trove of, you know, Jewish books and uh, my own wisdom, it was such a wonderful thing to discover. But I actually felt cheated because my parents had given my sisters and me every opportunity and every way to be educated. And this was missing because they didn't know about it. I didn't, you know, it's something that I say all the time. Um, people don't even know. I didn't even know how to say the word um, Jew in Hebrew. I didn't even know how to say the word Jew in Hebrew until I started on this journey towards more observance. Do you remember if there was one piece of wisdom that sort of, you know, like a, an aha moment when you started learning with the your teacher? Your so we, so this teacher, um, he had a class on the Tao Te Ching and Perkei Avot. Mm -hmm. So I was drawn in by the Chinese philosophy because who cares what a bunch of rabbis have to say? Um, but then he started showing us these deep lessons in Perkei Avot, like who is truly wise, he who learns from all people, who is truly strong, he who controls his desires, who is truly rich, he who is happy with his portion. So certainly these, um, you know, lessons from Perkei Avot uh, were very meaningful to me. He also told us a mashal. Um, I don't know if I go through the whole thing right now. We have a limited amount of time, but essentially a man is sent to an island to collect uh, jewels, but he loses his way and he collects potatoes instead. And the jewels are the mitzvot and the potatoes are, you know, the materialism. And in just a number of years, he forgets why he was put onto the island. Um, and it was the first person, it was the first adult in my life that acknowledged the fact that this island that I was sent to, full of potatoes, full of gashmiut, was not going to last. Um, because every grown-up that I spoke to, that I sort of expressed my concerns to, that nothing I touch will be here one day, um, just told me, don't think about it. Nobody knows. So the fact that he was touching upon this idea that maybe there's something transcendent that we can do in this world. I don't know. I'm a believer, but I, I also will admit that Faith is not provable, so even though I'm an Orthodox Jew, I'll acknowledge that. I don't actually know if, if this is right, but I, I hope it is. But at least I've, I've you know, sort of um, focused my life so that I am at least attempting to live a transcendent life. I am attempting to live for more than my next meal or my next vacation or, you know, whatever it is. Well, the, the question, I think, is how do we define transcendence? Because if you study Hasidut, so much of the transcendent is the refinement of our characters. And then in American Judaism today, uh, so much of the transcendent is repairing the world. So for many of the Jews who are not in orthodoxy, that is how they find their meaning. Is that enough? So look, I w we were raised to be good people, um, and I think certainly becoming a great person is becoming like the Almighty, and w as we become more like God, we become closer to God. So perhaps there is something that just sort of naturally occurs by refining your character traits. It's certainly um, an important part. Uh, look, as an observant Jew, I believe that um, 
we weren't just given the you know mitzvahs between man and man that there's something to develop our relationship between man and God mm-hmm. that also changes us um, because really anybody could just you know be a kind person be polite you know give a nice tip that's sort of like just general wisdom the question is when we you know practice things like Shabbat Tahara Mashbacha you know mm-hmm. when we do these things that at first might not seem to have any relationship to, you know, man to man, although I would argue that for, you know, things like going to the mikvah and, you know, having Shabbat for my family, there actually is so much that I, we gain, like, you know, people to people. But um, for me personally, having that belief in something bigger than myself and connecting myself to that, I believe it's done through becoming a better person for sure, but that that's not the whole picture. That's only a piece of it. Right. It, it's, it's interesting. I mean, God has become like a controversial idea. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's controversial, and yet it's fundamental to to Judaism. Is that something you encounter in in your role as Jew in the city? Um, I mean, I think well, I would say when pro- people just say, you know, I don't believe in God, so you know, so what? You know, can I still be Orthodox? Can I still do what you do, even if I don't believe in God? How do you answer that question? I mean, I would say that um, I think that faith is ultimately a choice. I don't think, you know, at sort of earlier in my tshuva stage, I was into all the proofs of God and Torah, and I kind of, I think, matured past that. And I would say that ultimately, um, I heard this great uh, sort of idea that um, when you have the truth, you have emet, and that's aleph, mem, taf. So it's the beginning, it's the end, and it's the middle. It's the entire alphabet. When you have faith, emunah, the, sh- the root of the word is amen. That's aleph, mem, nun. So that's the beginning and the middle, but then you're left off at the end. So we have sort of a foundation for faith. We have things that can give us conviction to believe, but ultimately we have to choose. Do we want Do we want to live in a world where we have the fixtures of God and Torah in our lives, or do we not want to live like that? And for me, having an existence where everything adds up to something, everything ultimately has a meaning, even if there's suffering and pain, that ultimately, there's if I don't understand it, there's some rhyme and reason to it. I, I simply can't sort of handle an existence where everything is meaningless and random and there's no purpose because it almost feels like give up. You, you know, at any moment, like that tragedy hit. The, the thing about that, you know, walking into fourth grade homeroom and finding out that a, a classmate is dead is that at any moment the things you love most could be gone. And so that could happen to any of us now. That's just sort of the state of the world. But if I go through life and I've connected myself to this higher power where I believe that there's a rhyme and a reason to everything, um, that gives me a certain strength to be able to handle it. The most honest uh, answer I ever heard on the issue of God is I can't prove to you that God exists. I can't prove to you that God does not exist. But I like to believe that God exists. So it's good for me that God exists. I've taken on that, that view in my own life which is I need to believe that God exists. But the minute I try to prove to one of my kids, here's the proof that God exists, I get into dicey territory. Yeah, I, I don't think it, yeah. it really works so well. I think. Um, and plus, if I had proof, then you lose all the romance because I like the fact that there's no proof because it gives me a chance to have faith. It also it would remove our ability to have free will. Um, mm-hmm. Arya Kaplan gives a, a parable that if you had the cop in your rearview mirror, You'd never be able to speed. You would just abide by the rules every moment. So if we could see God so clearly in our rearview mirror, we would never be able to gossip, never be able to lie, never be able to raise our voice. And so having that question or that doubt there 
allows us to choose moment to moment. So who do you try to reach, Allison, with you in the city? What kind of people are you reaching and what kind of stories are, are happening? Because you've been at this now for a good 11 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, I, I started to make the first couple of videos in 2005. I quit my job in 2007 to do this full time. Um, my you husband, went all in. I went all in. We, my husband was in his last year of law school, so I knew we would, you know, one day do okay. He just made partners, so that's <laughs> that's good. Um, but um, I had no funding. I had no seed money. I had no business plan. I was essentially starting a social media organization, but in 2007, social media had barely been invented. So I was really ahead of my time in this regard. Um, the initial idea was to reach the non-Orthodox community, was to show the people like how I grew up that my life isn't some horrible, subjugated mess, that I am a person that's choosing these things, that these things are meaningful to me, that I still live an enjoyable life, uh, you know, sort of in the material way, but that my life also has, uh, you know, a spirituality to it. And really the idea is to put the information out there and let people do with it what they want, um, but that ultimately people should make decisions based on knowledge and accurate information and not, you know, stereotypes or, you know, rumors. Um, so I would say about today about a third of our followers are um, outside of the Orthodox community, and I speak all over the world. We hear messages all over the world, and people will tell us that um, they started watching one video and another and another, and suddenly their eyes were open to a completely different sort of image of what an observant Jewish life could be like. Because for me, I never wanted to change my identity. I never wanted to become some extremist and, you know, move to some shtetl somewhere. I wanted to be engaged in the world and educated and open-minded, but just sort of elevate the life that I was living. So we've heard these stories all over the place, and that's what I was hoping would happen. But then, surprisingly, we started hearing from all these regular religious people that said it was giving them a chizuk, you know, sort of a more positivity and a better feeling and a better pride and better explanations than it ever heard before, which is terribly disappointing because what are we spending all this money on Jewish schools for if some balchuva, you know, uh, making videos has to give them a better answer? But then, sort of most surprisingly, we started to attract the disenfranchised and ex-Hasidic and Haredi crowd. Um, and that was probably the most surprising part to me because, you know, my conception of the Hasidic community is there. They're not even on the Internet. But there was this sort of growing cohort of people that were, um, I would say, for the most part, had gone through traumatic experiences in their lives. The happy mm -hmm. ones, the ones that are doing well, they're not looking for us. They're not finding us. They're, you know, in their, you know, sort of, they're in their shtetl there right. and things are going well. But the people that had experienced different types of abuse or dysfunction were looking for something outside their world and they had stumbled across our content. And we had sort of grown this following that we were not aware of until a couple actually came to one of my talks meant for beginners, and they had said to us, the guy said, at 10 years old, I stopped playing ball at 13. My English studies stopped. We were ultra Hasidish, but we can't live that life anymore. We want to be religious like you. Can you help us? And so that was just really life-changing because now I understood that a whole bunch of them were following this and that they had this need or this desire to try to transition to a new community. Um, and to, to answer this call, we uh, formed an initiative called Project Makom, um, to help people that have sort of fallen out of their communities find their place. Right. So you were talking about some kind of a happy middle here where there's like a, a centrist orthodox place where you can still be respectful of Allah but without going into that sheltered world. And is it working? So uh, I would say so. <laughs> um, we, we've had almost 200 signups in our first two years of programming with 
no marketing. That's for Macomb. That's for Macomb. Mm-hmm. That's, um, you know, when people find us um, from the non-Orthodox crowd on Jew in the City and they're interested in more, they can call their local Chabad. They can call their local shul. They can mm-hmm. get, there's so many resources out there for someone that, who has, you know, sort of sparked an interest to want to learn more. So we didn't have to build that infrastructure. On the sort of ex-Hasidic side, there was no infrastructure. So now we've built it. Um, the complicated factor, and there's many complicated factors, is that because so many of the people coming to us are trauma survivors, there's it's sort of each person is coming with layers and layers of pain. So we the have Judaism will not automatically solve. Correct. Right. For sure, Judaism won't solve. Um, we are careful to screen them. At first, mm-hmm. we weren't, but we have to make sure that they have basic home, shelter, food, job. If they're dealing with something more basic, their needs are not being met, we don't think religion is the right answer for them at that point. We send them out to social services, to mental health organizations. We really feel like until you have your basic physical and emotional needs met, it's not even the place to be looking into spirituality. Um, so that's one decision that we've made. But even if you put a bunch of trauma survivors together, child sex abuse survivors together, you need to make sure they're not hurting each other. Mm-hmm. You need to make sure that when they go away for Shabbat placement that you know they're not going to run into any challenges staying in someone's home. So sort of all of these pieces, we need to make sure that we're speaking to not mental health professionals and lawyers to make sure that we're sort of considering every angle. So that's been you know the challenge here. Also in terms of you know how people perceive us, um, we've sort of been quiet in terms of being known in the Haredi media because we don't want to be perceived as recruiting. Um, we're not recruiting. Um, You're responding. We, we're responding. Um, but, it, you know, you could easy, easily um, have, you know, an extremist come out and say, aha, they're here to, you know, suck out um, happy, you know, Hasidim and cut their payas off and, you know, move them to Teaneck, New Jersey. So, um so that's, you know, some of the challenges that we faced. And then we actually had to redo our mission statement because of Project Macomb, mm-hmm. because our mission statement used to be breaking down stereotypes about religious Jews. Um, and we were trying to figure out how do sort of these two sort of extreme ends that we're dealing with come together in the same organization. And it was cr- driving me crazy because I knew it was the same message and I couldn't figure it out. My husband helped me. Instead of breaking down stereotypes about religious Jews, we're reversing negative associations about religious Jews, mm-hmm. either because you lived through something negative or because you read about someone who lived through something negative. And what we really feel like is we are restoring Torah as it ought to be. We reverse negative associations about religious Jews by putting forth an approach based on kindness, tolerance, sincerity, and critical thinking. And really, the Jewish words for saying those things is menschlichkeit, ehrlichkeit, and seichel. Menschlichkeit to be a, a mensch, to be an honest and sincere person and seichel, to just have some basic sense to you, these things are missing, unfortunately, in parts of the Orthodox world. Right, but what I find fascinating, though, is that this is a kind of outreach movement for modern Orthodoxy, in a way. You're representing modern Orthodoxy to a Jewish world where most Jews will not follow Shabbat. Most Jews will not go to synagogue uh, every Shabbat, and most Jews will not pray every day, will not have family purity, will not keep fully kosher. So there's a observance level, uh, and in modern orthodoxy, which I'm part of, there is kind of that, that nice middle ground, and you're un- you know, unapologetically saying that this is a kind of, this could be a cool life. I'm not saying it's for everybody, and so this is potentially a really big idea. You know, I think I would say, um, yes, there, yes, we talk about modern orthodoxy, but we actually try to be bigger tent than that. 
we try to show sort of the spectrum of orthodoxy mm-hmm. because if a person is going to be a mensch and be an honest person and have seichel, then you can do that from across the spectrum of orthodoxy. Now, for me personally, I'm a college graduate. My kids are going to go to college. My husband's a lawyer. You know, we engage with the world. But if there's someone that wants to be, you know, a little bit less engaged but is still a mensch and still an honest person and still a thinking person. But don't we fall back on the same problem we spoke earlier about, which is that I don't have to be religious for that. I can just be a good person. For sure. No, so I, I, I'm saying for for what we're trying to show is that this is how you live a ritualistic life. Look, if you look at the statistics, if you look at the Pew study, um, orthodoxy is what is lasting. Um, the the non-orthodox movements. I mean, I've spoken to conservative synagogues, and the people that bring me to speak have told me, like, we we are dying. There's there is no one coming to any of our programs. Why below. do you think that is? Uh, well, I grew up in that movement, and I mm-hmm. can tell you when I go to Facebook and I look at my friends, they're all either intermarried or they became observant. Mm-hmm. And so, because I think ultimately. Um, what didn't work for me about it was that there was no wisdom passed down because we never actually looked at text. There was no um, consistency passed down. I, I think that's really the biggest challenge. Even though I'm modern Orthodox, we are very consistent about halacha. We really do our best to try to keep everything. And I think when you're passing something on to a kid, if you're picking and choosing, then the kid will say, well, you picked and chose that, so I'll pick and choose this. I'll mm-hmm. not choose Shabbat. I'll not choose kosher. See you later. And so that's so... Now, we can still struggle with parts of the Torah. We can struggle with parts of halacha. Not only can we, we should. We should have robust conversations about the parts of the Torah that bother us, parts of the Torah that we don't sit well with us, the parts of halacha that we struggle through. And those are the conversations that we have at you in the city to acknowledge them, not to brush them under the rug. But at the same time, to really acknowledge that it's living a consistent life. Um, that seems to be the the secret sauce to for Jewish continuity. Also, uh, philosophically, I heard a thing once: you uh, give to someone not because you love them, you love them because you give to them. And the more you give to Judaism, the more your attachment uh, becomes. And it's hard to give without rituals. Mm-hmm. So the three hours of building a sukkah is attaching me to Judaism because I'm just giving so much to Judaism. And even if I'm schlepping for a few hours to get the stuff for Shabbat, and the hours and hours that are involved with rituals is a way of giving. And I think we've gotten to a point in America where uh, the absence of rituals um, sort of creates, um, you know, abstract giving, which just my values. I'm a good person and I have Jewish values, but a value is not a ritual. Correct. Uh, look, the Judaism that I was raised with was a Judaism of convenience. If it was convenient to celebrate Sukkot one year, my family did it. If we had a dance recital that next year, we didn't. So, yes, having that commitment and that sort of expecting, you know, every week Shabbat comes, every, you know, uh, Tishrei, these holidays and come. And we're giving. We're, we're giving a piece of ourselves where I think it's like a marriage, that it's a commitment. And, and I would liken a relationship with God or to a Torah life like a marriage. There's parts of it you don't like, but it's a package deal. Um, and, and the giving is specific to Judaism, because as much as I love going to the homeless shelter, and I do, and, you know, I'm not giving specifically to Judaism. And I think this is the challenge that we're finding in American Judaism today, is that, you know, we can go to a demonstration uh, for migrants, and we can do all these things that are connected with, you know, social justice, and they're wonderful, and I do them. But it's still not the same thing as doing Shabbat, as, as giving to a specific Jewish ritual. That's a huge, that's a critical distinction that hasn't been made because what happens is one is replacing the other 
for too many Jews? Or uh, why do I need to do Shabbat if I've already been to the homeless shelter? Right. And this replacement thing is a big threat to non-Orthodox Judaism, I think. It is. I, you know, I think for me the saddest thing is that I didn't spend my first Shabbat until I was almost 17 years old. So people are choosing no before they even get a chance to opt in. They're opting out before they've even seen what, you know, the selection on the menu is. And because they sort of sight unseen have these ideas about what the religious Jewish life includes. And one of the ideas is that I'm done after the bar mitzvah. That's a classic sort of phenomenon yeah. where you, you build up, the climax is the bar mitzvah, and then see ya. Just at the point in your life when you're starting to think and have big ideas is the time when it ends. I, I wrote a piece once that we need a, a new life cycle event uh, when you're 18 called the high mitzvah. Mm -hmm. So from 13 to 18, there's so much programming that can do. I think one of the synagogues picked up on it. Mm -hmm. So that stick around for the next five years. Yep. And then the, the high mitzvah. So there's all these challenges and orthodoxy tries to deal with it. Now, orthodoxy has many challenges as well. I mean, in my neighborhood now, there's this thing where they're texting right. on Shabbat because they find it extremely difficult to restrain where this wasn't true 10, 15 years ago. Right. But we're so addicted to smartphones that the stringencies, the, the prohibitions have made it very difficult for some Orthodox kids to stay in the fold. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately um, people stay when they've been given a compelling, a more compelling reason to stay than to leave. I think that that's what we as parents and educators need to try to accomplish to, although they could choose not to do it, to give them a reason why um, a committed lifestyle and a consistent lifestyle ultimately is uh, a more fulfilling and a richer lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, did you remember the piece on social orthodoxy a few years ago that went viral? This idea that uh, so much of modern orthodoxy today is based on lifestyle mm -hmm. rather than the covenant with God right. and so forth. And, and that's, uh, that's an issue because if you find meaning somewhere else, then it can compete with that. So there is a, a, a more visceral theological connection where you know, I'm doing this because God commanded us at Sinai 3,300 years ago, and that creates a, a type of really a, a more a deeper commitment rather than just, you know, it's good for my life. Well, it might not be good right. the next week, but I still want to stick around. How do you deal with that? I mean, I'd like to look back and sort of reference all the generations that were, came before us. We all had a Bubby somewhere or a Zadie that was willing to give up everything to keep Shabbat, you know, um, anti-Semites in every generation rising up to try to destroy us. And we have it so easy here now in the world today as observant Jews, and we're so quick to, you know, throw it away. And so I've challenged people to consider all the generations that came before them that, you know, were willing to work so hard and, and put everything on the line to maintain it um, and kind of to, to honor them to be that link to the next generation. You know, my listeners are going to hate me because I think I've said this about five times, if not more. <laughs> Shani, can I say it one more time? That's the most powerful idea for me in Judaism is when I think of my hundred Bubbies and Zaydis that, that have been doing this since the destruction of the Second Temple. And it, I call it the goosebumps of Judaism. Mm -hmm. That for me is the most powerful idea that keeps me going, is this sense that I'm part of a chain. And if they can do it, why shouldn't I? And who am I to break the chain? Which means, let's say I go through a phase where Judaism is not bringing meaning into my life. It's not. Where the Shabbat is not. 
you know, sort of wanted a, the, the great Shabbat. It's just not. And then, and then what? Should I leave? You know, or if I have a patch where I'm not having a good relationship with God or I'm angry with God and I'm angry with Judaism for whatever reason, should I leave? You know, and this is the fundamental thing that is dealing now with orthodoxy. I hear of stories of college students. You know, they leave Jewish Day High School and then they, they enter college and they see a thing by, you know, uh, Christopher Hitchens that challenges the very existence of God, and then they just crumble, and they just go right to cheeseburgers, and it's all over, and they leave the derech, you know? Mm -hmm. So how do you build this kind of insurance policy where people won't leave their Judaism no matter what? I mean, I think it has to start in the homes and also being reinforced in the schools, but I think, you know, I told my kids from the youngest age when they were eating a cookie, do you love how that cookie tastes? Do you know that Hashem loves you so much that He put delicious tastes in cookies in the world? Because... We could have had a world where there were no cookies in it, but because Hashem loves you so much, he put Oreos in the world so you could enjoy them right now. Um, so to be able to, from the youngest age, show them godliness in everything mm. from the completely mundane and really the sense of how much Hashem loves them, but also engage them in these conversations about what do we do when our faith is challenged? What do we do if we can't prove God? Um, why is it compelling to still believe despite that? What can we look to in our history in terms of the miracles of Israel, the miracles of the Jewish people that can give us sort of that extra chizuk to go on? And I think ultimately I have two piles. I have my believing pile and my doubting pile. And they both have a good amount of things in them. Um, I hope my believing pile is a bit bigger. But ultimately I acknowledge that my doubting pile has things in it. And it doesn't mean that they don't disappear, but that I have enough that I fill into my believing pile that I can feel okay to choose that. Um, you know, it just struck me. I had this thought that I've had now for the very first time, and I'll share it, is if there's one thing we can say about orthodoxy is that it allows plenty of time to just consider all these issues, just on a very practical level. The very fact of orthodoxy means that we have a lot of time to engage and consider, whereas if you have a, a lifestyle where you might not do Shabbat, and then you don't have that space and that time to give to Judaism. In a way, I think maybe, I'm, you know, my job makes me give to Judaism, you know, eight, ten hours a day. So I'm in that special position. But for somebody who it doesn't work for a Jewish organization, uh, Shabbat gives you that time that's laid out, and then you can use it any way you want. But if you don't have Shabbat, then what are you giving to Judaism? Just this idea that I'm proud Jew and I have good values? There's no opportunity really to engage with these difficult questions. And just the very fact of engaging is bonding you to, the, to your Judaism. Also a question that I considered in my teens as I was becoming more observant was, what was I doing today in my non-observant time back at 16 that was like my ancestors? You know, what sort of practices or rituals were I keeping? And they were very few. And I want to sort of look at, you know, if they were keeping for so many generations, and if I sort of, again, sort of grabbed onto that, that would be something to pass on to my children. Also, in terms of when tragedy strikes, having, you know, a framework to be able to discuss tragedy with my children. Otherwise, how do you possibly explain the horrible things that, you know, in the world? And again, it doesn't make the pain go away, but it can give it a framework to, to make, um, you know, unbearable things a little bit more well, that's where the learning comes in, right? Because the, the kid realizes that there are, you know, answers. 
in his own tradition. Now, what you've been involved with Jewish education. I mean, it certainly is an observer. What's missing? I think God. I think there's a huge mm-hmm. gap of God in Jewish education. I think that so many, you know, day schools are all about sort of like memorizing verses from the Torah mm-hmm. and just making sure you and you look good we, values. Um, I, don't, I, I think at least at my kids' school, um, they're teaching them to be menches and they talk right. a lot about midos. Mm-hmm. I really think it's the God factor that's missing um, and sort of that the goosebump side of it. We need to really make sure that. Um, but it has to be in the home too. I think parents need to be explicit about how they feel and and why um, why they're proud to continue this way of life and what it means for them for their kids to do that as well. You know, um, a husband could say, "Oh, my wife knows that she, that I love her." Like, you know, I said it before. No, like we need these things to be actively expressed. So I think that parents need to actively express to their children throughout their whole lives. Um, why being a Jew is special and why it's a value and a privilege and so that they should really grow up in a home where it's explicitly spoken about and where questions are allowed to be. I'll tell you, in the more Haredi side of things, um, the, at least the people that are coming to us, the ones that are working well are probably not experiencing this, but a lot of shutting down of questions, a lot of you know not being able to understand why we do this this way or even different opinions out there, just really sort of one way only and don't question why we do that. And that the kids that ask questions are considered troublemakers. Um, so I don't think that that's happening as much in the modern Orthodox world, but that's certainly something that um, we're seeing more on the people that fall out of the Haredi world. Also, a lot of fear-based education coming out of the Haredi world coming to us, um, the people coming to Project Makom. And again, I do have to separate between the places that are working well that we'll never hear from and the people coming to us. But they're not just learning about a God to fear. They're learning about a God that delights in their suffering. Um, and it's such a sick idea because I think believing in God's sort of unending love of his children is such a central part of this whole process and believing in the sick God that you're literally paralyzed um, to do the wrong thing, not because you want to choose it, but because you've been, the fires of Gehenna have have been so crystallized in your brain. Um, We are now trying to reprogram the people coming to us with positive messages, but that's really hard. Well, you know, that's one of the biggest mistakes, I think, in in Jewish theology and in the way Judaism is practiced today and preached by rabbis, we don't often speak about the fact that God loves us. I mean, in Christianity, that's fundamental, this idea that, you know, God loves you. And um, I've spoken about this to a few rabbis, and they, they always tell me the same thing. They said, you're right, you're right, you're right. We don't do enough of it because so much of Judaism focuses on the commandments. And it's not so much that God loves us, it's God demands from us. But it's in Judaism that God loves us. And why do we do so little with that? So I can tell you at least some of the feedback that I've heard from at least this Project Malcolm crowd. A lot of them have expressed that they think that a lot of this sort of fear-based education is a result of the Holocaust. That in every Holocaust family, there's a certain amount of trauma passed down. Mm -hmm. But in the Hasidic world in particular, nearly all of their grandparents are survivors. And they put up high walls and faced inward. And so, so much of the education is about... You know, we were punished. It was our fault. And, you know, kind of Hashem cracked down the whip on us. And so, you know, I've had people sort of go through the different ways that the abuse occurred and kind of tying it back to different pieces of the Holocaust. So that's something that I'm thinking a lot about in terms of so many Jews want to, you know, sort of support Holocaust education, support survivors. I actually would love to get a study done to see how the Hasidic community fared from the Holocaust as compared to the other communities because I believe that so much of the dysfunction that we're seeing is actually Holocaust trauma. Well, if there's any scholars listening, 
please pick up on this invitation. And I think you, there's a lot to what you just said because I mean, the exact opposite of a God that loves you, Holocaust represents the opposite of that. I heard a line this week that uh, for too many Jews in America, the defining moment of Jewish history is the Holocaust rather than Revelation at Sinai. And I think at some point we need to go back to Sinai. Yeah, no? we need to heal. Yeah, and the obsession with the Holocaust is not helping us heal. I think uh, so much of Jewish identity is wrapped around the Holocaust, which reminds us that, you know, we're victims, reminds us of our doubts about God. It's a really complicated mess because we're also supposed to not remember. Uh, I was at uh, a screening the other night, and it was this film, you know, Who Will Write Our History, and it was just, just staggering tragedy in the ghetto of uh, Warsaw. And at the end, I asked the filmmaker, you know, it's hard for me to watch that because we've come so far from that. I can't relate to this kind of darkness, this kind of pain. And all I can think about is, thank God we're living in America. And the reaction was, well, you know, America's bad too, and it can happen again. And I'm thinking, I, I just don't see it happening again, and if people call me naive. So the Holocaust has so traumatized so many Jews that they just, it seems we can't get past it to a point of remembering Sinai and a positive view of Jewish identity. So growing up in the non-Orthodox community, every sort of conversation on faith always ended with the Holocaust. That was for sure. That was sort of the defining factor of why people didn't believe, why they weren't religious. It was always about the Holocaust. I would say coming from this dysfunctional Haredi crowd, um, so much of the pain and the negativity of how their Judaism was taught was from that. But at the same time, this only happened 70 years ago, and this is one of the greatest atrocities in, you know, human, human history. history. So um, the fact that we're still seeing reverberations, you know, 70 years later shouldn't come as a surprise. But mm -hmm. I think what we do need to do is sort of consider um, what can we do now to heal? What can we do? I think the people coming to us, they need serious mental health help. Um, mm -hmm. They need, you know, I'm saying physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, you know, all, all sorts of, and then also just this religious abuse. Mm. Um, right, and the people who come from the non-observant side, uh, what kind of stories have you picked up that uh, you want to share with us? Just somebody who just picked up Jew in the city, and what kind of uh, communication do you have with your followers? So it's frustrating to me because sometimes they'll write in. Um, there was this one guy that uh, was a Rutgers um, film school grad, and he told me that uh, he actually volunteered to be um, our video intern. He just finally made a video for us about his story. He was on a birthright trip. He was raised to hate Orthodox Jews, um, and he was on a birthright trip, and he met this cute minor Orthodox girl, and he was kind of interested in her, but... Um, it seemed like a really extreme lifestyle, and she said to him, you know, I'm not dating anyone that's not observant, so see you later, hon. <laughs> um, and so he went on to Google and started Googling orthodoxy, kind of angry, and came across you in the city and watched one video after another after another. And suddenly this whole new perspective opened up to him. He's seeing CEOs and chairmen of law firms and, you know, people. He came for the girlfriend, stayed for the Torah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so this whole new world of sort of an integrated and open-minded and educated orthodoxy opened up to him. 
he began to learn and observe, and then he actually married the girl. So uh, they're they're living in Teaneck, New Jersey today. Yeah. Wow, and they have twelve kids. Exactly. Um, and then you know the the challenging thing is that a lot of people don't actually tell me what happened until I come mm. to their town. So I was in the middle of this small town in South Carolina at the end of my talk. A woman comes up to me. She's a doctor was raised to not have good feelings about the Orthodox community. But as she was doing her rounds one day, she was feeling like life is kind of empty. Found our website, started watching one video, another, another. And she said, this is what's missing from my life. She told her husband, we're going to move to an Orthodox community. They picked up their family. And today they're Shomer Shabbat, they're kosher, the kids go to day school. And this literally started from her finding videos online. You know, it's exceedingly frustrating um, trying to fund a social media organization People don't actually believe that someone could watch a video and suddenly their life could be changed. But we've seen this again and again and again. We have an easier time funding Project Makom because we do in-person events, Shabbatons, <laughs> classes, that sort of thing. People, oh, I know where my money's going towards. Just saying that, you know, we're writing articles or making videos that are changing people's lives. Very well, hard to- yeah, you light sparks and open doors is what you do. Now, we're also, one of the new trends is post-denominational where people are saying, you know, it doesn't matter whether you call it, you know, conservative or orthodox or reconstructionist or whatever. How does that fit into your game plan? So here's the challenge. Whenever an orthodox Jew does something bad, he's always called an orthodox Jew. (laughs) Whenever he's carted off in handcuffs, when he steals money in Lakewood, when he molests a child, that's the ultra-orthodox Jew, the orthodox Jew, the orthodox rabbi. So I've had many rabbis say to me, what is wrong with you? Why are you using the word orthodox? That's such a bad word. But at the end of the day, if the media is going to continue to label us as orthodox and we do something bad, then we must attach good meaning to that word. Mm -hmm. So, yes, on one hand, I don't want to make small boxes and leave people out. Um, I would like as an inclusive uh, attempt as possible. On the other hand, when it's been given such bad meaning and association, I feel the need to attach a new meaning to it and a positive meaning because there's so much positivity and the media we have worked so hard to create great content we've hired publicists they do not want to hear our positive stories i mean it, it's so frustrating and when you know another off the derech memoir gets written every media outlet is chasing after the people to tell their story and so it's a really uneven playing field when the bad stories are really sought after even in terms of project macomb we have negative stories They've been hurt through Judaism, but now we're healing them through Judaism. And so um, telling the story of the off-the-barrack person that just leaves completely and, you know, eats cheeseburgers, that's the story that the media wants to tell. To try to tell the nuanced version of it, that they got hurt in their school by their rabbi, but now we're showing them love and positivity with Judaism, with rabbis, they don't want to tell that story. So yeah. that's frustrating. Well, that's endemic to, uh, to media. You know, is you know, we the the bad news is it's human nature to be more interested in bad news, and we have to deal with that all the time. Like, how do you deal with stuff that's not bad and yet still relevant and important in people's lives? And that's what you're doing. So you're going against the grain. So that's the beauty of social media. That you know, and this is really what I tapped into back in 2005 when I had this idea to create this you know Orthodox image makeover campaign for the first time media was being democratized and instead of waiting for the New York Times to tell a positive story we could start to tell the stories on our own we could start to share and we have to also acknowledge again the shortcomings in the community the challenges in halacha or the challenges in the Torah because that's such an important part of the the whole conversation but when we can show not tell even but just show how rich and beautiful and positive our lives are 
that was the information that was missing for me, those eight years of insomnia and panic attacks. If I'd only gotten a chance to meet someone that was living this happy and healthy and thriving, successful life that was attached to spirituality, that would have made such a difference all those years in my struggles. Now, which, which ritual in, of orthodoxy or commandment do you find the most, uh, we get the most pushback, like, for example, wearing wigs for women? I, I noticed you had a video on that. On wigs recently. Yeah. Um, which one do we get the most pushback? I mean, probably, I'm trying to think. Uh, stuff around genders is certainly challenging. You know, anything mm. around Kolisha or, there, look, there's right. some. There, Kolisha means listening to women singing. My rabbi in seminary said he would change it if he could. He said, mm. I, I'm, I'm not able to, but he's like, that's a really unpopular one. So, uh, look, I think anything around, obviously, um, the, you know. Women's role. Women's role. Uh, I mean, I, I think there are certain parts of the Torah that, you know, we simply can't change. Um, in terms of, um, you know, the Aguna crisis, um, something we promoted a lot is the halachic prenup to show that, you know, for the places that are signing this halachic prenuptial before the couple gets married, the modern Orthodox world has essentially eradicated the Aguna issue now. Um, they have not had a call to ORA, which is an organization that deals right. with, with an Aguna in five years um, because it's become so mainstream. So that's certainly a challenge, but I do believe that um, we... So you're not hiding from the, the major oh, challenges we, we within completely, orthodoxy. No, we, we completely... We speak right. openly about the things that are challenging. And I had a conversation, I was on a media conference recently in Israel. The Israeli government invited a bunch of media um, people to come out and I was speaking to um, a publisher up in Canada and he was a conservative guy. He was talking about how the community is basically dead, a similar thing. And I said to him, I want you to know that you're probably thinking as an Orthodox Jew, I'm some close-minded. I said, believe me, all the parts of the Torah that bother you, that part in Vayikra and whatever, it bothers us too. We, we feel challenged by that too. But the difference is that we don't say just because parts of the relationship are challenging, we throw the whole thing out. We lean into the challenge. Gotcha. Now, what's your relationship with the open orthodoxy movement from Rabbi Wise, Riverdale, and all his followers? That's not really your what you follow, correct? I would call myself centrist orthodox, right-wing modern orthodox. Um, my personal opinion is to try to be as big tent as we possibly can be. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, because they've really big tent. I mean, in terms of the role of women, they're allowing women rabbis and so forth. Stuff that was not done before. Done before. So, from my personal taste, it's a little bit on the edge for me. Mm -hmm. um, I do think, though, you know, as much as we can engage people and help them find a place. Look, if someone feels like they need to do women's tefillah, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to be a Shomer Shabbat Jew. I don't know if that's the end of the world. That's not something that I'm personally going to choose to do or send my kids to a school where they do that. But if that's what's missing for them, I laned back when I was conservative. That wasn't anything I was missing. But if someone feels like they need to do that, um, I'm not going to be the one to say they shouldn't do that. Am I going to choose that for myself? No, but... I think it's one of the great features of orthodoxy is the fact that there is a uh, sort of open orthodox wing where they have found through uh, allochically... Uh, supportable ways of bringing women, being more involved and allochically. I've read a book, whole book on that, and you don't call it a minion, and it's only women, and blah, blah, blah. There are really ways to get uh, to get women more involved spiritually. I think the real rub is uh, considering tradition alacha or not, and I think in the right-wing orthodox world, tradition has a certain alachic status because they will acknowledge that what the open orthodox rabbis are doing is not against halacha. 
but sort of in terms that. of Masora, it's sort Misora. of right. Absolutely. So look, I for something that is more sort of in my I would say sort of personal comfort zone is the Yoetzat Halacha idea. I personally go to a Yoetzat Halacha. I think it's an Explain amazing. Explain that. So for it to, for uh, to go to a woman when you have questions around um, mikvah in terms of counting your your uh, clean days in terms of you know sort of anything in that sort of intimacy space. So many mm. women are used to going to a female gynecologist. So now to have a woman to turn to to give advice in these areas. And what I've heard is that they're getting questions from the entire spectrum of the Orthodox world. They're getting from Chabad. They're getting from the more right wing circles. And these women are so knowledgeable and they are so committed. Um, and I think that and they are doing things that men rabbis used to do. Correct. And, and the thing is that they actually have gotten the bot, the, the buy-in now from sort of the centrist orthodox world. I would say for me, you know, sort of the challenge of sort of how far do we push, we have to um, change with time. We can't s- stay stuck in the mud. I think that's actually against Judaism. And I think that p- parts of the Jewish community don't change enough. And we see problems with that. But sort of the pace of change has to be in a way that can sort of carry enough of the Jewish community with it, and if it sort of goes too much too fast, that you lose a big segment because it seems too revolutionary as opposed to evolutionary. I think that's where, for me, it, it's a little bit of a challenge. So I'm more into the evolution of change and updates, but I think it's sort of that fine balance of sort of with time, with, you know, sort of rabbinic backing. Well, you know, I'm, I'm slightly different than that. I, I see more as like big tent orthodoxy, whereas I see orthodoxy as a big table. And on one side, you have, you know, more of the traditional black hat Haredi. And on the far end of the other table, you have the more open orthodoxy movement and everything in the middle. Because it, it, it will never get to a point where every orthodox Jew will agree to be the same. <laughs> so I think the diversity within orthodoxy 100%. is kind of a nice, nice feature. So on that note, anything you want to share with us in terms of the next 6 to 12 months? What's going on with you in the city? Yes, yeah, so um, we, I mean, Project Malcolm is continuing to grow, and we did just name our next um, class of Orthodox Jewish All-Stars. So this is a program that began in 2014. Um, it started with a video, just one of our videos of trying to break down stereotypes. I was raised seeing sort of the Hasidic women pushing the strollers, all the children, and just thinking, oh, women can't work, and seeing men all looking rabbinic and thinking they're all a bunch of rabbis. So I really, and even, even in popular media, these um, sort of misconceptions, are repeated again in the Mindy Project. You have Mindy in a subway at one scene, and she pushes past a guy in a black hat and beard, and she's like, out of my way, rabbi. So sort of these um, cultural things that we don't even realize get repeated again and again. So I wanted to do a video where we could show Orthodox women working and Orthodox men having jobs that are not rabbis. So I wanted to get Joel Lieberman in my video, which my husband's like, how are you ever going to do that? And it turned out that we were both being honored at um, the same event. Um, AJOP was honoring me um, as a top 10, uh, sorry, um, NJOP, um, National Jewish Outreach Project, was honoring me as an influencer, and he was like their you know, honorary speaker that night. And so my plan was to come early and schmooze him up and charm him, and I got there late. And so literally as he's leaving, I like sort of intercept him at the elevator, and I give him my elevator pitch as the door is closing, and he tells me, sure, call my office. So uh. I, t- I tell my husband, I got Lieberman. He's like, no, you didn't. He tells that to every crazy person that stops him. So I called his office, and they said, submit a proposal. I sent it in, and he came back with a yes. So once I had Joel Lieberman agreeing to be in a video, I would say that was sort of a big watershed moment in the organization because suddenly I'm not just a crazy lady on my couch making videos. That's how the video started. But suddenly I could now get Faye Kellerman um, and you know a bunch of other amazing people 
And so this was our first big video, the Orthodox Jewish All-Stars. And then from there, it was such a sort of an amazing... Um, Who else were the other All-Stars? Um, Alex Clare. Um, mm-hmm. He's a Billboard Top 10 recording right. artist. Um, the Maccabees, Tamir Goodman, Jamie Geller, who was a producer at HBO. Um, we had the first um, from female Supreme Court clerk. Um, mm. We had the first from female uh, Road Scholar. So we had some really cool people. Mayim Bialik. Um, she actually wasn't in that, but Mayim Bialik has been in um, a few been of involved, our videos. Yeah, yeah, for she, sure. yeah. So she's been in a few of our videos, um, and she also, you know, is a big uh, supporter and promoter of uh, of what we do. Um, but you know, speaking of Lieberman, yeah. uh, Allison, 18 years ago, you were too young. Shabbat was all over the news. He was running for vice president with Gore, and it was unbelievable. It was like a whole media campaign for Shabbat. Love it. Uh, on the New York Times, is we did a whole thing on that, and Shabbat had its 15 minutes of fame. That's really cool. So anyway, so now we're up to our sixth class of all-stars. Mm. Um, so I'm here now in L.A. Um, filming Joey Assas, um, the CTO of Open Table. Um, and so we will plan, God willing, to have our event in December. Um, we have two. Where's the event in New York? It, it will be in New York, God willing, so people can fly it if they want to. Um, but we have we have two Olympians actually. Um, we have AJ Edelman, who was the first Orthodox Jewish male to make it to the Olympics. He was just in um, uh, South Korea in this past February for skeleton. Um, and we have a woman bought El Getterer for Taekwondo in 2012. She she was actually the first Orthodox Jew to make it to the Olympics. Um, mm-hmm. And I had never even heard of that when, when that happened, but she's one of our all-stars as well. Um, we have the transportation secretary for the state of Massachusetts, Stephanie mm-hmm. Pollack. Um, so, I mean, so, you know, it's interesting. You're calling them Jewish all-stars, right? Not Orthodox well, we know, all-stars. We, we, we do call it Orthodox Jewish Oh, you all-stars. do? We okay. Do, we do. Because, meaning, you know... Because that's the whole purpose of the, the movement. Whole pur- the whole I purpose gotcha. of the movement... You know, if the treasurer of Ford Motor Company, Neil Schloss, is an Orthodox Jew, if Henry Ford's money is You being might as married, well just say it. Yeah. Right. We know that we, we are specifically saying it. We, are spe- we had a reporter come to our event a few years ago, and a secular Jewish woman, and she said, I'm so glad I saw this because I went to journalism school to tell the truth, and I realize now what a bias I've had. And yeah, so you really have to use the word. Otherwise, it, it, it misses the point. No, misses every, the point. everyone honors famous right. and, and, and successful exactly. Jews. The idea is that if you can rise to the top um, and be the general counsel of Madison Square Garden or be the president of Comscore, um, these, this is uh, one of our board members, um, or the chief risk officer of the NSA and managed Do they wear yarmulkes? So some of them do, some of them don't. The chief yeah. risk officer of the NSA speaks a Heimish Yiddish and, uh, and wears a shaitel. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because uh, if you wear a yarmulke, then you're identifying yourself as a Jew, and that's how you become a light unto the nations is people need to know that you're Jewish. So I think what the challenge is, and sometimes with our all-stars, they're a little bit more shy. Mm-hmm. They like to kind of keep a low profile. And this is mm-hmm. what's so frustrating to me for every crook, cre- crook creep, and extremist their, their yarmulke and sometimes their beard and the whole package is just all over the media and it's just it's highlighted so greatly and for the people that are doing positive things they generally like to lay low and we live in a time now where every alternative lifestyle is loud and out and proud and celebrated and yet sort of the last frontier of sort of being able to say who you are proudly is sort of in the religious space in, in that space you have to kind of keep it a little bit quiet because you're a weirdo yeah, you're weirdo, and also, in terms of religion, it's been given a little bit of a bad name by some movements and forces. For sure, no, we, that's exactly what we're trying mm-hmm. to address, that to take really to um, 
take it back from the hijacking that's happened because the extremists should not be the ones that are speaking for us. It should be all the reasonable and sensible people. Uh, so when's the event? In December in New in York? December, yeah. Um, we're, we're still working on a date. Um, we had 500 people last year. So if one of the wealthy donors that listens to this podcast would like to make a donation to Jew in the City, what would they do? They would go to JewInTheCity.com, look for our donate button. Okay. Um, we're a 501c3. JewInTheCity.com, look for the donate button. Allison Joseph, thank you very much for coming to my podcast. Thank you so much.